one we'll read uh, again as we continue to do so from Philippians uh, chapter 1 from verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all shamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am heart-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all, for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Well, back in 19, I think it was about 1976, 77, there was a a band put together by a couple of, uh, literally a couple of punks, and and they formed this band out of their uh, time together in school, and a group was formed which eventually became Joy Division. Some of you who are old enough will remember Joy Division. Some of you who are not so old but are into music will know Joy Division. Joy Division was one of the uh, incredibly important transitional bands in the post-punk era. The lead singer of that band was a guy by, by the name of Ian Curtis, Ian Curtis was um, a young man who really epitomized the struggle of life. It was a tragic life. Look into the life of Ian Curtis, and I was reading in these past days, I was reading a little bit of his biography, and I I can honestly say that uh, I really felt for him. He he suffered from epilepsy. He suffered from profound depression. Finally, uh, at the height of the success of Joy Division, Ian Curtis took his own life. It is a tragic story. And yet at the same time, the story of Ian Curtis and Joy Division, a band who had made a commitment to each other that if any of them uh, left the band that they would rename the band. Joy Division became New Order following the death of Ian Curtis. 
when we look at that, when we see that kind of experience, I think it just captures it in a way which is so clear that the, that the paradox of life, isn't it amazing that a band which is uh, writing to the Manchester scene of the late 70s and early 80s, in fact forming the base, the foundation of the Manchester scene, um, have a, a title to the band called Joy Division and yet are profoundly rocked with personal tragedy, sadness and grief. <laughs> in a way, they capture in, in a kind of a little microcosm, a picture of the struggle of life, I think. I think for many people... That, that is where we are. Enemy said that um, Curtis's writing was filled with imagery of emotional isolation, death, alienation, and urban decay. <laughs> I left school in 1981 uh, during the height of the recession. It was just a grim time. It was a, just a sad time, three million people unemployed, when the population of the country was around about 42, 43 million. Proportionally, a lot more people unemployed during the 19, recession of the early 1980s uh, than now. And that during that time, there was that clearly portrayed picture of joy division putting on a front and yet relating sadness and brokenness. There was a time when, the, when Jesus was uh, observing the crowds. He had become, in a very short space of time, this one who we are about to remember, this man who went around and preached in a way which was extraordinary, which resulted in a mass of people following him, Jesus looked out on the crowd and it said that as he looked out on the crowd, he felt for them. His heart was moved for them. In fact, he, he said that in his, in, in his words, his description of them, that they were like sheep without a shepherd. In, in an agricultural, farming kind of environment, sheep without a shepherd, shepherd is such a powerful picture. We might say they're, they're, like, they're like families without guidance or whatever it might be. We could use pictures that describe just the same kind of thing. You know, here we are 2,000 years later if we knock off the 30 years back to 1980. You know, 1980 years after Jesus, nothing much has changed, has it? There is a tragedy, there is a brokenness. There is a paradox. On the one hand, a desperate, desperate seeking for joy, satisfaction, happiness. On the other hand, below the surface sometimes, yet erupting to the surface in life, in activity, in decisions, in lyrics of songs... There is that emotional isolation, alienation, and urban decay. 
It just breaks out. There is a paradox. I want us to look this afternoon at uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 22 onwards. Because what Paul brings to us here is Paul's paradox. Because Paul's paradox as a believer in Jesus is completely the opposite to what we have just described. We're going to work through it in in a few verses. Look at firstly at verse 22. Paul says, if I'm to live in the flesh... That, if that means if I am to go on carrying on living and breathing in this body. That means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now straight away we think, well, okay, that, that sounds fairly straightforward. Paul is saying, well, if I carry on living in this body then there's good work for me to do. He goes on to say a little bit about what that good work is. He says, if I carry on living in this body, there's good work for me to do, which is to come to you, the church at Philippi, and to continue to talk to you about Jesus. Let's remind ourselves, though, where Paul is, because the second part of what he says in that verse is actually remarkable. Okay, fair enough, we can understand, we can relate to the idea that if I carry on living, then I've got good good work to do. But then he goes on to say, yet which I shall choose, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Where was Paul? At this point in time, where was he? He was in a Roman jail. He was facing execution. And he says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Doesn't that sound a bit strange to you? Doesn't it sound a bit twisted? How can Paul make a statement like that? How can he say, how can... How can he say, I haven't chosen yet? Because it sounds to me, doesn't it sound to you, that if he's in a Roman jail facing imminent execution, possibly, that the choice is not his. The choice is actually in the hands of the Roman authorities or Caesar. Doesn't it? Doesn't it sound in human terms as as though that's the reality? Paul hasn't got a choice here. Paul's situation uh, is not one of being in control, is it? I, I, I don't know whether any of us have experienced what it is to be constrained, whether it's under legal imprisonment or whether it's under some other way where we can't get out of something. We, we, we're lost, aren't we? We have no control. And yet Paul describes here, I've got control. How does that work out? I think the only way that we can understand that is by getting into the mind of Paul and understanding how he views life. Because if we understand how he views life, 
we begin to understand the massive impact of what relationship with Christ actually means. And it works like this. In simple terms, Paul's view of life is like this. I'm in a Roman jail. In human terms, that looks as if I've lost control. But I know something different. I know that my life is not in the hands of the Roman authorities. Oh yeah, in human terms it might look as if it is. It might appear as if that is the case. But the reality is, I know that my life is in the hands of the living God. I am one in Christ. I am, it's a phrase that, we use, that Paul uses again and again in many of his letters. I am in Christ. I am one with Christ. I am alongside Christ. I am immersed in him. We are one together. I belong to him. It's the way he describes his relationship. And what he's saying is quite simply this. If I belong to Christ and he has the sovereign authority over the beginning and the end of my life, if he knows whether my final uh, days are going to be spent in this Roman jail, if he knows and he's going to allow the final sweep of the Roman sword to take off my head, then I know that he is the one who has the authority And therefore, if he has not yet revealed it to me, in a way I haven't made a choice yet. He's kind of saying, I'm immersing my choice, my decision, in the greater decision of Jesus. Have you seen those those Russian dolls? where, Where each of the dolls kind of drops inside of the other. I think Paul sees his life a little bit like that. I, I, I am one of those, but I am inside of something greater. I am owned by something greater. I am covered by something greater. I am covered. I am owned. I am inside of the living God who is the supreme authority over all things. And it's not clear yet what choice he's made. And therefore, because I am effectively in that choice, I kind of say that that choice has not been made by me. (laughs) Do you get the picture that he's saying? Imagine. Imagine how liberating, how freeing the issues of life can become when we have that kind of a view of the life that we live. When we have a view that I might be perceived in human terms, it might seem as though there are all of these things outside of me, that are outside of my control, that are weighing in on my life day by day, that are making the decisions for me that are rocking me this way and that way, that are twisting me in this direction and twisting me in that direction, and we're we're at the whim of events. And Paul says it might seem that, but I have a picture, I have an understanding that my life is in something bigger. 
There's, there's the outcome of Paul's understanding of his relationship with Jesus. Now, what, why does he write this? Why has this been preserved down through the centuries? Why did he form those words in that way? Because they were formed by the inspiration of the living God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for you and for me today to say, change your perspective on life. Paul wasn't some kind of superhuman who just lived life differently. He was somebody who God had taken a hold of his life. And he had a different view. I want to ask you a simple question at this point before we move on to the next verse. Has God taken a hold on our lives to that level? Or do the events outside of our lives continue to be what has a hold on our life? In our view. Where is it? Because the invitation is quite simply... Be freed, be liberated to the understanding, the confidence that it's outside of this world. I am in Christ. The outcome of that is that he says, and this is ridiculous in human terms, but he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Maybe, maybe the harsh reality of impending death causes grace to pour into people's lives where they are able to say things which in human terms we can't say naturally. I think that's the case, isn't it? Because quite honestly, I stand here and I'm with you on this, I guess. I haven't got the strength to say that. I believe it in my head and I struggle with it in my heart. But I believe this. And I trust this because I can't get any further than this at this point. That if ever I am in this position, I trust that God will grant me the grace to be able to say, it's better to be with Christ. I trust that God would grant me that kind of grace. Because when all's said and done, I can't change his call on my life or his ending on my life. But I want to be able to say, I believe with all of my heart that it's better to be with him than it is to be here. I don't know about you, but I think, you know, loads of you are just so young. But reality is, folks, those of you who are a bit older, The reality is that as you get older, as you see more of life, as, I guess, the jading impact of life 
the draining effect of life continues. Maybe this becomes more real. Maybe this becomes something that we can say, do you know what? I've been round this roundabout again and again and again. I'm getting to the point where I want to say, it's better to be with Christ. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. I don't think it was a worn down with this world, therefore that's better. I think it's way bigger than that. Just way bigger. I think he's, he's seen Jesus on the Damascus Road. He's realized the reality of the glory and the majesty of Jesus who is risen. The real living Christ. And he's got this vision in his mind that says, I really believe with all of my heart that the risen Christ and being with him makes this pale into insignificance, as good as this gets. And then that's what he's saying here. I understand how great it is, how marvellous it is, and therefore, because it is that amazing, I know that it's far better. That is a life-transforming confidence, isn't it? I want that. I want that kind of confidence in eternity. What can, what can be offered as an alternative to that? Please, at the end of the service, if anybody has got an idea of anything which is better than that, come and see me. Please let me know because that is amazing. That kind of confidence that Jesus is worth more than anything in this life. Your best experience, your best event, the, the thing that has been the most treasured part of your life, take it, ponder it, multiply it by a million trillion, and you won't get close to what it's like to be with Christ. That's how good it is. And Paul knew that, Paul understood it, because he had seen it in a way that we have not seen it. And he says, do you know what? It is better to be there. So he goes on to say, because of that, because I am confident that my life is in his hands, because I am confident that it would be better to be with him, I can now roll that kind of thinking out to you, church at Philippi. Because he goes on to say in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Isn't that interesting? My choice, he says, would be to go and be with Christ because that's better. But it's better for me to be here for your sake. Why is Paul's presence Better for the Philippian church. Well, let's see what he says. Convinced of this, maybe this is the turning point where God reveals to him what his future is. This is the turning point where Paul begins to understand, at this point I'm not going to die in this Roman jail. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. 
your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. How does those verses work? Paul says, I understand, back to verse 22, uh, there is fruitful labour for me. The fruitful labour is that I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to travel from this jail uh, and I'm going to end up back in Philippi and my presence is good for you because I'm going to be able to explain, nurture you, help you, grow in faith. We are meeting um, during these next weeks, aren't we? A time, a season which is known for peace and joy. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Joy. Christmas joy. Paul has it here. He talks about joy here. What's his connection? How do we receive that joy? How do we experience the kind of joy that Paul has already expressed in his confidence in Christ? Well, we've said it straight away there. His confidence in Christ. He says to the Philippine church, he says to the church at Escape, the living word of God says to us today, you want peace, you want joy, You need to grow. You need to be, just dig deeper. You need to be more foundationally connected. You need to be flourishing in Jesus. It's as though Paul is saying, as he he says, uh, you will have reason to glory in Jesus if I come to you. There is nothing that my presentation of the Bible to you can achieve that is more important than your growth in that joy of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's a kind of A spectrum, isn't it? For some of you here today, that might mean that my proclamation of Jesus needs to be something along the lines of you first beginning to understand who he truly is and coming to know him. It might be that my role, this church's role, for for you if you have been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years is to continue to encourage you and challenge you and help you in knowing Jesus. Why? Because that is the foundation of the kind of joy that Paul has just been able to express. The kind of joy and peace that says it doesn't matter that I'm in a Roman jail because my confidence is in that Christ who is sovereign over all, who has the rule over all things, who is greater than everything, who has my life in his hands. Joy in Christ. Where do we find that? We find it beginning at Christmas time.
We find it ending when Jesus returned, resurrected, and ascending to heaven. 33 years, three years of ministry, an event in the history of this world that changes everything. Why is Jesus the source of all joy? We could say firstly, because he is the only one who is eternally connecting us to God. He is eternal. He came leaving behind him the glory of heaven and returning to the glory of heaven. He was and is and ever will be the eternal Son of God. He is the one connection that we have with eternity. It's declared that Christmas time, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Joy. But I think the the way that we mostly can understand the joy that can be found in Jesus is in this. The event of Jesus coming into the world is the way in which God secures our reconciliation with him. We are separated from him. We are turned away from him. We have no joy. We have no hope. We have no security. We have no eternal confidence. We are born like that. And yet what we read as Paul writes to the church in in Colossians, he says this. He says, in him, that man, all of God exists. When Jesus came into the world that Christmas time as a little baby, it is God entering into the world. The eternal living God entering into the world. Is there anything more breathtaking than that? God coming into the world, living a life so that at the age of 30, he embarks on three years of public ministry. And God was pleased to have all of his being dwell in that Christ. To bring God into the world. But more than that, it's not just that Christmas is the joy of God coming into the world. That verse goes on to say, Through that one who came into the world, we are reconciled. Through him. How? Because he made peace through his blood on the cross. More than anything, We need that reconciliation with the living God. That kind of peace forged by Christ. 
by giving himself as a sacrifice so that we might live. That kind of peace, the kind of peace which means that I am now in relationship with God, is the only kind of peace, the only kind of joy that rises, carries us above the issues of life today and gives us a joy which sits straddling the issues, carrying us to eternal hope. It is that kind of joy, that kind of reconciling confidence in God. That kind of peace. Achieving that kind of peace is not an easy thing, you know. Kevin Costner uh, appeared in the movie The Guardian. Some of you will have seen it. He's a rescue swimmer. Jumping out of, uh, jumping out of helicopters as the U.S. Coast Guard in, in uh, mountainous seas to rescue people from shipwrecks. Finally, he gives his life, saving somebody. He dives down from safety to chaos and sacrifices himself so that somebody might receive security and safety and peace. Where does the idea of that kind of story come from? From Jesus. Who dived down from heaven into the chaos of this world. The death and destruction of this world to forge peace for us today. You know... It is only that kind of peace that can reverse the paradox for the tragedies of the likes of Ian Curtis of Joy Division. Desperate for joy, yet living with tragedy. And Paul says, do you know what? It can be living with tragedy, yet filled with joy. You can reverse the paradox but it can only be by knowing peace with Jesus. And Paul says, if I come to you, church at Philippi, it'll be a good thing because you'll know it a bit more.